Acolytes and priestesses, use your silver sickle to harvest a hemiparasitic plant, seek for wisdom in the bonfire's flames, and have these robes shrunk since last Beltane? Is it, is it priestesses? Is that the plural? Priestesses? Priestesses. Priest, priestesses. Because it's time to talk tall to me. <laughs> Maybe they shrunk in the wash. Are you just supposed to dry clean these rooms? How many cups of wonder have you been hitting a day? I don't really keep track. Oh, I mean, maybe that's the problem. Welcome back to Talk Tall to Me. I am Owen Sade. And I am Nick McGill. Together we are feckless momes. And this is Talk Tall to Me. A druidic mystery in the forest grove of Prague Rock, in which Nick the Oak Knower and Omen the Trout Tickler attempt a powerful flute magic designed to bring the sweet rain of music to our barren land. Every album a ritual, every song an incantation. Nick and I will weave the ancient magic of the 1970s into a bardic oral tradition encompassing the entire discography of Jethro Tull. How many bassists must we sacrifice before <laughs> the old gods are satisfied? Find out in Talk Tull to Me before it's too late. Um, is that, is, I'm, I'm all done now. Is that a little, a little too soon since, since John Glasscock dies after this album? I think it's not too soon enough, Nick. Uh, here. When will it end? You monster. You Monster. So, Nick, here, here we are. Uh-huh. Yeah, here we are. We are going to talk tall about a very special song, the third song off of Songs from the Wood. The third song from the wood, as it were. That's, that is it. Before we dive into that overflowing kiddie pool, do we have any housekeeping? I think we've got some notes that we can cover, some more stuff on the on the album proper. Yeah. We've got some more quotes from Dearest Ian here. A quote from him, I will give you no context. A quote from Ian. Please. I, you know I hate context. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. Actually, by the time we did songs, the codpiece had mysteriously disappeared, never to be oh found again. <laughs> My suspicion, though she flatly denies it, is that my wife put it on the bonfire with the autumn leaves. From time to time, and in vain hope, I still look to see if it is turned up on eBay. Who knows? One day I may yet end up paying through the nose, if not through any other orifice, for the return of it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A little codpiece lore. Actually, in, in reference to it showing up on eBay... He mentions his stunt flute showing up on eBay in oh, yeah. in the recent Reddit Ask Me Anything thread that he did just a couple of days ago in, That's right. in terms of our recording this. Um, I will throw the link to that in there. It's interesting. It's got some it's got some interesting little tidbits. It's not very long. Yeah. But it's got some interesting information. There are a lot more questions than answers. Well, it is called Ask Me Anything, not I Will Answer Everything. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Shout questions into the void with Ian Anderson. 
And though those you you kind of have to pick through the pick through the 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 noise to get to it. But those pieces where he does answer are yes. are really they're really fascinating. I did see one question that he chose not to answer, which was how deep and far apart do you plant your salmon on the salmon farm? Yeah. <laughs> Little salmon humor for you. Little agricultural joke. Salmon farm. I get it now. (laughs) He does answer what happened with Martin. What happened between you and Martin. Ooh. And the answer is, I'm not going to tell. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, let us return for a moment to the cod piece. Yes. Yes, let us. So... As we have discussed before, the codpiece made its debut, I believe, during the War Child yes, period. Yeah. And then came into its full flowering, if we can <laughs> I, say that. I hope we can. During Minstrel. Yeah. Yeah, that was the true that it, it the the War Child was the seed and the minstrel was the full blossom of of Ian's codpiece, yeah. Um, the codpiece, yes. And then, of course, for Tool to Rock and Roll, he put it away with some mothballs to change into his leather jacket getup. Probably, probably jeans. Probably jeans. Yeah. And then, mysteriously, the codpiece had vanished. That's it. Yeah. Wow. I can imagine. Let me let me do an imagination exercise, Nick. Please. I am Ian Anderson's wife. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, at that point, it, it would it have been Jenny still? No, no. I no, think that he married thinking... Shona. I think that we, I think he married Shona Tween. Okay. Okay. Between the two albums, between this one and and uh, Too Old. Gotcha. Okay. Or maybe during Too Old. Who knows? Well, probably someone knows. <laughs> so, someone will. We cannot. We can neither confirm nor deny. But, you know, if I was a new wife, to a man with such specific and questionable fashion choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I might make decisions. Also, if I felt like a certain item of clothing represented a past that was unhappy. Oh, okay. Yeah. I might perform some wife magic. Some wagic. Some. If you will. Some clandestine. Codpiece burning. Yes. Yes. Clandestine codpiece. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. In fact, if I were my own wife, Nick, I might burn certain items of clothing that I have had. And in fact, maybe I have done that. As your own wife. But I wouldn't tell myself. Did I perform the wedding for you as your own wife? Did I? Uh, We're getting really inception here. I can neither confirm nor deny that. (laughs) So thank you for that wonderful bit of costume talk. Uh-huh. What else do we have in terms of tidbits before we dive into the song? Let's see. Is this a concept album? I'm glad you asked. From Ian, even the title of the album was quite openly saying, look, here's a bunch of songs, and the only thing they have in common is that most of them were written on a train from High Wycombe to Marleybone. If that's a concept, then it's a concept album again. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think that people maybe play fast and loose with the term concept album. Yeah. You know, it, if you see if you see songs that have any kind of relation, you know, you might scream concept concept. But in fact, what a, let's let's review what a concept album is by using the example of Thick as a Brick. Mm-hmm. It follows one single thought 
through many twists and turns. Yes, it's more of a story and not just a theme. Exactly. All albums have themes, or at least most albums have themes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's safe to say. It's a themed album. It's not a concept. It's a themed album. The theme is woods. The theme songs is woods, from. and this is the songs that come from them. This is the songs, because what else is going to be on it? Silence from the woods? Silence from the woods. Hmm. That sounds nice. It does. <laughs> Slightly along the same vein of what we were just talking, the, the descriptive term folk music mm. has been dismissed by both Ian and Martin as not relevant to the album. Interesting. Because in their minds, folk has a strong connotation of American singer-songwriters performing activist songs in coffee houses, particularly yeah. around that time, whereas Songs from the Wood was composed and performed as a tribute to the United Kingdom. Hmm. Anderson said that the album itself was, for all of the band members, a reaffirmation of our Britishness. Hmm. So if if we look at folk as a strictly American thing, which is apparently how Ian sees it, yeah. then then yeah, I mean I, I I guess it's it's not folk. Well, I I had never thought of that term in context of of nationality. I had sort of yeah. my my not very carefully researched idea of what folk music is is sort of any any grouping of traditional musics played by anyone in the world. But I can, but, you know, with that new information, I can totally see how, especially at the time, the term folk music would have a very strong association with what was happening in America. Fun story about coffee houses, Nick. Yeah. Would you like a little, a little anecdote? Antidote? <laughs> antidote. Oh, you're a mess. Anecdote. You have so much trouble with that word. It's those words, yes. <laughs> I do. Yes, let's, let's slip a little anecdote in here. Thank you. Thank you. So speaking of the 1960s, that's when my dad was a strapping young man of late 20s, early 30s, uh -huh. because he is as ancient as the hills. And he was studying in Berkeley, California, which, as you know, was one of the epicenters of the free speech movement in the 1960s. He was hanging out in a coffee shop called Blind Lemon. Okay. Which was famous for some of these, you know, activities that exactly what, what Ian is describing. And who should stroll in but Mr. Bob Dylan? Oh, wow. And loaf around and then say, oh, has anyone got a guitar? And there was one hanging on the wall, so he plucked it down and played a couple of tunes. I'm frankly disappointed that we didn't get a Bob Dylan impression there. Of all the impressions and the voices that you do, you didn't do a Bob Dylan Bob Dylan, hmm. Has anyone got a guitar? I think he sounds, now he sounds more like... Well, yeah. He's like a, he's a dime store Tom Waits. Strong words, I know. He's, he's, a, he's a Tom Waits whose battery's running down. Yeah, right, right. He needs a recharge. So when my dad told me the story, I was like, I was way into Bob Dylan at that time. And I was like, oh my gosh, dad, that's amazing. Was it like incredible? He was like, no, it was very annoying. I was there trying to study. It caused a lot of commotion. Like, oh, yes. I almost had emotions at that point. Oh, I get, yes. I get it, Dad. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so the Tulls do not consider this folk rock or folk music. Very good. We can say that it is influenced 
And well, also, I think what is more important there is that it is for them a very British tribute album. It's a tribute, as they said, to their Englishness, their Britishness. Right, right. Which I think we will start to cover as we get into the lyrics of this song. Which, at this point, Nick, shall we have a listen to? Yeah, let us dip our toes and our tongues and and our ears into a cup of wonder. That sounds unsanitary. Let's do it. You determine which order you want it. Okay, cup well, of wonder. Nick, who yeah. needs drugs when we have music like that? That's, I mean... I am a tall addict, and I'm not seeking help for it. Unless, of course, you need something like penicillin, in which case you need more than this song. But that I, song, yes. it's an upper, I would say. Oh, it's it's a bouncy one, yeah. And it's it's all about booze, baby. Or is it? It's, it's not all about booze. Question mark? Question mark. Why don't we Coffee talk too. a little bit about the music? Yeah, there's a there's a fair amount to discuss musically, I think. Yes, but before we get into the nitty-gritty, would you, is this for you a song more that you like to listen to when you're sitting in your favorite chair in the dark with a cup of tea having a sad, or blasting down the road in your, um, in your Prius? I don't have a Prius anymore. You used to have a Prius. I did. I, I have a, a hybrid Subaru Crosstrek and a... Toyota C- Tacoma. Toyota Tacoma, yeah. Right. Well, blasting down the road in whatever you prefer. It's a driving song. Yeah. It's a driving song. And it's a driving song. Oh wow. Yes. I thought you I was like I was like, Nick, that is a very bad rendition of Cup of Wonder. Now I understand. Driving song, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. This is this song really pushes itself forward. It comes in with a with a big with a big bump and yeah. it continues to bump along. And it, it's it's not one of the standard tulls where it's like, "Okay, we'll introduce this and then we'll introduce this and then we'll introduce this." It's kind of the the whole band right right from the get-go within Pretty the first 15-30 seconds for sure. Yeah, we have the lovely intro the the lovely acoustic intro uh-huh. and then after it establishes that opening riff it just blasts in with electric drums bass organ flute don't forget that flute baby i will never forget the flute how dare you infer that i would but actually i think the flute is is from the start with the guitar yeah is it, it is yeah yeah, flute, bass, and tambourine, like, all right from the get-go. Yes, and then a little bit later, we get the cowbell right in there. Cowbell, 23 seconds. I got that noted. Guess what? I got a fever. The only prescription is more cowbell. So it's a party. It really is, yeah. It, it is. It's celebrational. It's, I could see, like, the band that you hire for your... I don't know, solstice party or whatever, like ripping into this and and really kicking things off with this song. Mm, mm-hmm. It's in 8-8. Eight, eight. Okay. Which is 
different from four four? That's that's there's, not a facetious question. That is there's double of it. Okay, it's no. I, you could so I mean, in theory, you could count anything in any manner. You know, as long as it's divisible, right? Oh, like right, if something's right, yeah. in four four, you could count it in eight. If something's in eight, you could count it in four. Yeah. But for for me, because of the speed of the song and the way that the the way that the measures seem to be divided musically, it seems to me like it's in eight. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Otherwise, you have to be like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and it's the phrases seem longer than that. Okay, I I I trust you. I'll have mm-hmm. to trust you. It's a dangerous, dangerous game you're playing. Oh, slightly scared. But I also think that here and there, there is an occasional extra single beat added. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. You know, for for supposedly not having like really professional training in, in music, they sure put together some wacky, really impressive odd signatures and, and, and structures in their in their music. Well, I think that Ian and surely everyone else t- take it very seriously and, you know, even if they didn't go to Juilliard for music training, that they, you know, they autodidacted themselves. Yeah, but it just seems like the level of knowledge that they're working with would require some advanced track, advanced comprehension of of music theory. Ah, yeah. Well, but you know what uh, Mark Twain said, Nick? He said a lot of things. He said a lot of things. He also said, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. That's, yep, that sounds perfectly like him, and I support it. Thank you, Mr. Twain. And then he said, I'll have another cigar and another (laughs) scotch and whiskey. One of my favorite scotch and whiskey together. Yeah, he, wow. He rolled, he rolled hard. Yeah, he did. Other musical things. Uh, about about two and a half, we have that little that little kind of just a little bit of a breakdown where it's it's Martin's little weedly guitar that I love that part. That's I was gonna such bring a that fun up. little part, yeah. So that brings up something else. The interplay between the acoustic and the electric guitar in this song mm, mm-hmm. is so spectacular. The way that they play off of each other, I think that they have done some clever engineering so that perhaps one of them is you know, more audio left and one of them is more audio right, so you really get that effect. Mm, yeah, okay. And I think that that helps to embody the theme of the of the song and indeed mm. of the album itself, which is this, you know, this kind of return to ancient beliefs and practices through a modern lens. Yeah, I I, I kind of want to say like a generational aspect of of old world and new world, but we're all we're all ultimately doing the same thing. We're all ending in the same result. Sure. Yeah. 
We all end up in the cup. We are we're all drinking from the same cup. Yeah. Yeah, and and in the end we we get drunk. It just it just depends on how we get there. Yeah. Yeah. The bass in this song is incredible. So funky. When we when we listen to the song, we usually you play it on your end and I hear the audio through my headphones. Yes. And occasionally little little distortions happen. But in in one case, and I don't know why this is, but I was only hearing the audio of one side of things, you know, like of, huh. of audio left. Uh-huh. And that allowed me to listen to the bass in isolation. <laughs> uh-huh. And oh my goodness. John is is dancing all over the place. It's just so skillful, and he's laying down such a complex bass track mm-hmm. that you don't, I think, realize unless you're able to isolate it like that. But wow, it is fantastic. He's incredible. Yeah, yeah, he is. He really, really is. It really it, it took me by surprise. For lack of a better term, that's always the problem when when listening to to music with crazy talented bassists is generally that that really falls behind. Well, it supports everything else. You know, without it, everything would seem flatter. But yeah, you yeah. don't necessarily appreciate it by itself. I remember seeing an interview. I think we had a DVD, Nick, in the in the early two thousands of of a a contemporary Tull concert and some of, there were some interviews with some yeah. of the bandmates. And I don't remember the bassist's name at the time. He was a younger fellow. And I remember him saying like, I think of myself as a stealth bassist. <laughs> you don't have a choice. You don't, he, was, he was like, he was like, you don't necessarily hear me, but you feel the bass. Yeah. Okay. I get you. There are some double flute harmonies at various points. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Barrymore Barlow does a fascinating thing throughout this song where he plays back and forth with kind of double time drumming and and more pulled back, almost like you were saying, almost like a almost like a like a four four okay. type of, of drumming. So sometimes he's going like dum 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 and sometimes he pulls it back to like you know, he's playing between the I guess you could say the quarter notes and the eighth notes. It gives you sometimes a little space to appreciate what the other instruments are doing. Mm-hmm. And when he accelerates, it gives you this feeling of, you know, fun and, and movement and acceleration and like you're being pulled forward through the flowers. As opposed to casually strolling. As opposed to casually strolling. Exactly, yeah. Nick. Yes, you know. I do know. Yeah, that is the hallmark of, of really good Barrymore work is... That fluctuating, but but fluctuating to the effect that it, it feels like it flows with the song and it's not just, oh, there goes the drummer again. He's not animal. He's not animal, no. And all of it combined produces this effective exhilaration almost like the different instruments are almost like the different instruments are the individual ribbons on a maypole nick mm. which when danced and woven together form an overall 
delightful and celebratory phallic effect. Right. They when they are untied and unwoven and and wafting in the breeze, they're all kind of they're moving roughly in the same way, but they're all their own individual pieces. But when you put yeah. them all together, it really does create a genuinely beautiful end result. Yeah. And it is a it is a maple around which I am happy to dance for the next 30 minutes or so. <laughs> Speaking of which, shall we jump into some of the lyrics? Sure. Yeah. This is, I think this is another instance of Ian's raspy voice that I, I brought up last week on Jack in the Green. It's quite also high. A lot of the notes mm. that he's hitting are are high. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little, maybe a stretch range. It's just starting to, to hit there. And maybe this is the start of, I'm trying to think of, let's see what's next. Heavy horses. Heavy horses is pretty high too. Maybe this is the point where he's he is starting that progression up and up and up. Heavy horses. You know what? The other thing is that he never does falsetto. No, no, he doesn't. And some of the songs, you know, some of the some of the ranges that he covers, he could do falsetto. Yeah, Rush does falsetto. Well, I, I think that's just Getty Lee's voice, I think. <laughs> but but in terms of singing technique, you know, you can either belt. Oh, yeah. Which means using, uh, I don't know the science behind it, but, you know, there's, there's, you know, vibrating your vocal cords in a certain way, which gives you a certain range. And then falsetto is using them in a totally different way. Right. Which right. I think puts less strain on them. I definitely think so, too. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, I wonder why he didn't make more use of falsetto. I don't know how common was it at that point. Well, Rush was doing it. Well, I mean, yeah, but who else? I believe that the what's the guy with the lips? Steven Tyler, Aerosmith. Yes, they were a bit later. Just not too much later. Maybe it was more associated with some of the hair bands. I mean, but I, I definitely, I definitely think that uh, Led Zeppelin. I was just thinking uh, that Jimmy Page was was definitely singing in Robert Plant. I'm so sorry. Robert Plant was definitely singing in the falsetto. <laughs> he was, yeah, but his voice was generally really high too. But let's see when did Aerosmith. He also had, you know, the other thing is that he he was able, and a lot of the, what these rock stars are able to do is blend, you know, where you don't hear the transition yeah. between your, yes, right. your head voice and your belt voice. And so yep. there's this very clean transition. And just, and it, you know, you can trick people into thinking, oh my God, they're belting up the, all the way that high. Yeah. Aerosmith was 70, so they were certainly around at this point and had some of their best albums out at this point. So they, they were contemporaries, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows? We could debate it. We could come up with theories all day yeah, long. Yeah, right. And in fact, we will. <laughs> Stay tuned. But ultimately, yeah, like it's just it's something that he never did. And as we see that progression, maybe maybe over these coming years, there was a... I don't know, like a subconscious attempt at going higher because some of these bands who who were singing higher were coming out. And by the time Under Wraps hits, that's that's why he's done so. Here's 100 percent speculation. And, and and in fact, I'm not even going to use Ian in this next sentence, period. <laughs> I can imagine if I was a musician of a certain time period and grew up in a certain tradition that certain singing techniques might be regarded mm-hmm. as unmasculine, perhaps. Yeah, yeah definitely. I and can so definitely I might, see that. I might say, well, no, I'm not going to do that. 
because I'm a real man, and so I'm going to sing in my in my chest voice. Yeah. No matter what the consequences. Yeah. Uh... And again, I'm not saying period. And again, I'm not saying that Ian <laughs> did that or had that perspective, but it's just a thought. No, I, I get it. I totally get it. And I would not rule that out, certainly. Let's do talk about some of the lyrics. Yes. Let us do. We get one of my favorite, just in overall, one of my favorite things about Tull is the intercatalog referencing. Oh, yes, 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 of yes. songs and albums. We, we've talked about it a little bit before. Uh, we get a Beltane reference, which, I mean, fits in perfectly here. But we accept your invitation and for that, I think it's just convenience that they happen to have a song about Beltane because it, it's it's not a heavy-handed reference here. It's it's because they're really talking about celebrating in Beltane, so it works. Sure. We also get a Green Man reference, which leads back to, to last week. Mmm. Ask the Green Man for where he comes from. Jack and the Green. Yes, yes. You know? And I think that's it for, for cross-referencing. So I want to I want to jump forward to May Day. For the May Day is the great day yeah. sung along the old straight track. But the May Day is the great day sung along the old straight track. Which I used to think was gray track, but oh, whatever. But they, he does say gray earlier, so it's not that bizarre. Oh, with gray standing stones? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Ask me how gray standing stones. Let's talk about May Day. Sure, sure. So May Day is not actually the solstice, but rather the equinox. It is the spring equinox. Mm, Which we are coming up upon in a week, actually, here. In real time, yeah. Yeah. And it goes back, it is an uh, an ancient Celtic pagan tradition celebrating, uh, if you break it down, it means the fire of Bel. Mm. Bel, I believe, was one of... One of the cool gods, and uh, and so it was specifically celebrated with bonfires. Okay, and of course it was also a fertility festival, and that is where you get the maypole tradition. And for anyone who is unfortunate enough not to be familiar with a maypole, it's a big pole that you stick in the ground and you attach ribbons to the top of it, and then dancers hold the ribbons and dance around it, weaving it in and out until a beautiful pattern is formed. It also represents, Nick, a... A penis. Penis! A penis, yep. It is phallic, and thus you have the uh, the fertility festival aspect of it. There would also be, you know, a certain amount of dancing and cavorting and music. You would definitely have a Jack in the Green leading a, a parade, yep. as we talked about the other day. But it wasn't always well-accepted tradition in England because once the Catholic Church got involved, they were a little, little, little queasy about some of these, some of these pagan things. Yeah. And, and at various points, the church cracked down on it. Apparently in the 16th century, there were some – the church banned May Day celebrations – there were riots that ensued in which after which 14 people were hanged and Henry VIII oh, had wow. to then go and pardon another 400 from death. Whoa. So this was before Church of England then, obviously. Right? Probably. Yeah, or, you know, around the time of the transition. Guess who else banned May Day festivals? This is going to shock you. Oh, gosh. Margaret Thatcher. 
<laughs> Close. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell. Oh, uh, there it me. is. Yeah. Who described maple dancing as a heathenish vanity generally abused to superstition and wickedness. Boo, Oliver. And, of course, Charles II, who represented the restoration of the monarchy, amongst other things, erected a massive 40-meter-high maypole in London to signal the return of the fun times, which was, I must say, very cash money of him. (laughs) Just meaning, like, good? Good, yeah. Okay. Not quite sure the terminology the kids use nowadays. So he he brought it back. Well, he signaled that it was acceptable to do again. I don't think it ever really went away. Well, right, right. He he brought it back into the the legal permissibility where it's it, you don't yeah, have to exactly. have your your underground maypoles. <laughs> Secret maypole rave. Your your black market maypole, your back alley maypole if you will. Right. Yeah. So it's one of these traditions in England that Ian was clearly fascinated by at the time. And which represented an embracing of his Britishness and the band's Britishness, uh-huh. which occupies this sort of interesting cultural landscape where it is, in one sense, totally a part of the official culture. Right. In the sense that it goes back thousands of years and has this long history and everyone does it. And it also is part of, at the same time, this sort of subculture or like shadow culture where it's not officially associated with the with the religion of the day. And there's something a little bit, you know, maybe naughty about it because aren't you really doing something terribly pagan even though you're supposed to be a Christian nation? Yeah. There was a lot of that subversion and kind of looking the other way. Yeah. You know, like, oh, we're not supposed to do this, but, you know, we're not we're not hurting anybody unless the But people will riot if we tell them not to. Right, yeah. Yeah. Unless the king rides by, we can generally get away with it. But if And probably even if the king rides by, he'll be like, Oh, a maypole, let's do it. There's probably some hotties. Depending on the king, yeah, exactly. Depending on the king. If it's Henry the Eighth, probably be okay. In his early years, I imagine he wouldn't be doing any dancing in his in his in his gout years, but yeah. No, no. <laughs> the gout years of King Henry VIII. That's my new uh, historical fiction coming out. Love that. Next Love year, that. yeah. From the perspective of the gout. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. It's like in Fight Club. I'm Charlie's liver or whatever it is. I don't remember. The <laughs> <laughs> way there was something else that I wanted to say, and it was very important, and I, I don't remember yeah. what it was. So old gray standing stones to go back to Druidic. I believe that's got to be. That's got to be Stonehenge, right? Well, not only Stonehenge, but all of the other... Or any henge. Standing stones that, that litter the landscape of, of Britain, yeah. Yeah, this is so cool. I mean, we have a bit of a dry perspective on this, Nick, because we are, as we have mentioned before, and some of our listeners may not know, American. Oh, surprise, yeah. I know. I guess we should have told them that. And, you know, it's it's so different culturally... The two countries in, in ways that I don't think we often think about. And I I remember when I, I visited England when I was 14 or so, and I, I had this moment of realization when I was looking at some architecture. Because here, if you look at a building, it's the building. It was all built at the same time. Or maybe it was like pre-war and, you know, has had one refurbishment. Or, you know, in the very, very oldest of circumstances, 
it was built in the 1800s and it's been carefully preserved, right? Right. There's only so old a building gets in the States. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In England, people have been living there and building things for thousands of years. And I remember seeing this. It was just a normal building. It was a little cottage somewhere on the side of the road. But the whole, because of the way that the, it was on a hill and so because of the way that the earth was cut, you could see all of these layers. And the bottom layer were these massive, huge, kind of irregular stones. And, And then above that, they were still quite massive, but much more regularly set stones, which looked more kind of Roman. And above that, you had a different kind of stonework. And then above that, you had like it went all the way up to like brick or something. And it was just like, oh, my God, someone has been living in that house for literally thousands of years and just building a new layer with whatever building techniques were available to them. Yeah. And that physically embodies the overall history that encompasses the UK. Exactly. That side of the world. Yeah. Exactly. And here we're like, oh, yeah, I remember in in 2000 three when they built that McDonald's. Right. That's the history for us. Right. And, you know, and and speaking of architecture, you know, some of the standing stones were Mm. actually broken apart and used by later generations just because they were available, not because of any sort of, you know, cultural perspective. They were like, well, do we want to dig a bunch of stones out of the ground from 30 miles away or do we just want to chip a bit off this one? Yeah. Nobody's using this. Let's let's grab it. Yeah. Yeah. So this song is about drinking and celebrating and sharing, passing on information. It is the celebration where you pass the cup, where you pass the plate. There is a semblance of like old world sacrifice, quote unquote, where is the line? Stir the cup that's ever filling with the blood of all that's born. Stir the cup that's ever filling Yeah, I wanted to talk about that line, Nick. What do you make of that? Because I I think that, well, sorry. <laughs> what do you think of it? I think that's generally we farm, we harvest, and, and we quote unquote sacrifice these things to consume. Mm-hmm. Whether it's we're drinking wine for a celebration, whether it's for a ceremony, whatever. I think that's that's the blood there is the red wine because a little further up we go past the wit of ancient wisdom past the cup of crimson wonder so a, a red wine pass uh ask the green man where he comes from ask the cup that fills with red So all of this can can go back to super early on pagan, like actual sacrificing of animals or humans or or humans, for that matter, in terms of the imagery of the red. But I think at this point, it's more of an homage. It's more of, of a reference. It's like in the, the Catholic Church. It's when you you drink that red wine. It's the the blood of Christ. Quote unquote. I was going to say it almost feels like a subversion of the Catholic tradition where, you know, in, in the Catholic Church or in the Anglican Church, 
you have tasted this Merlot, for it is my plasma. <laughs> And my red blood cells. Boy, you have you have a really classy church that you go to. <laughs> this is a fine vintage for it was. This... <laughs> my blood hath been aged in oak barrels. What's thou desire to smell upon the cork? Right. But in that tradition, it's, you know, very specifically the blood of one person who yes. saved everyone's souls. This right. is almost an inversion of that. It's this is the blood of everything that has ever lived. Right. All flowing together. And in some sense... It has all led to this moment. It has all given itself to this moment so we could live, so we could experience, so I could give this experience to you. I will pass my knowledge and my wisdom and everything leading up to this point right. has given itself for this point. And we in turn, even as I give my tradition and knowledge to you, I myself will be grape stomped into a wine for later generations, as will you be. And we all will yeah. flow back into the cup that we drink from. It's... It's sort of like a, there's, you know, like this endless pool of life that we're all evaporating from, condensing as rain, and then falling back into. Yeah. It's really beautiful. I I love this album so much, and it's, it's know, really leading me to to want to be just a mushroom-picking hippie in the forest and, and, and spread this lovely faux druidic knowledge, you know? Let's talk about faux druidic knowledge and and sort of your aspirations of being a mushroom picking hippie, Nick, because I think that you know we left off with Charles the Second, uh-huh. but I wanted to go a little a little bit more into more modern history. So if we jump forward to the early twentieth century, we start to get a little bit of a resurgence of interest in the roots of some of these cultural traditions like the maple. And there are some different examples of it. Even in the late 1800s, people started to say like, hey, you know, what if witchcraft never really died out? People started to ask, you know, and question, are there any remnants of it? Because clearly it is such a strong cultural base to British culture. Is it not possible that some of these traditions still exist? And there were a number of researchers who started you know, some of them were historians, archaeologists, and and that evolved into, a, you know, a renewed interest in this, in these traditions. And some people in researching these ancient traditions ended up kind of reformulating them, re, you know, putting together the pieces and stitching together something that resembled a practicable religion. And, and all of that was very fragmented until the 1960s and 70s when a resurgence in spiritualism and interest in alternate spiritual practices and general cultural counter-revolution all fomented an environment in which people were like, you know what? Yes, we do want to be pagans. We, you know, So that was around the time when there were a couple of modern druid societies which which mm. formally formed. And all of that is to say that I think that Ian was not the only person who was going back to the woods and reading books about ancient spirits. Okay. He just had a platform to express his opinions on it, but it was part of a, a greater thing. There was definitely, a yeah, movement. there was a movement. Yeah. And I also think that how much did this album contribute to a cultural movement like that? Ooh. It's hard to say, but yeah. I mean, definitely when we were in high school and, and I was, my brother was a 
a fully fledged druid at that point, and I was like a a pretty little pagan boy. You know, this album was very influential for me, being like, yes, the maple, yes, Beltane, yes, I will celebrate the goddess. <laughs> yeah, it helped push us in the direction of we were pagan curious. You know, we were yeah nature druid adjacent already, and it helped to push us in that direction by saying like, yeah, this is a legitimate thing to consider and think about and, and want to be and experience. It's rock and roll, baby. And it's also rock and roll. You attended the Maypole celebration at my place, didn't you? I believe so. It sounds familiar. I think you did. Wasn't my friend Aaron crowned the May Queen? That sounds right. <laughs> I see you've blocked these memories out. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite the night. <laughs> I don't know if I was there or heard about it. You were there. You were there. Okay. <laughs> Go on. Continue. No, but I mean, I'm just thinking back to the the time when we were discovering Tull, and I think that we we did a lot of sort of solstice celebrations and equinox celebrations, and you know, we were also working at the Renaissance Fair where there was a daily maypole dance. Yep. You know, so this song, to me, I think what I'm getting at, Nick, represents a real cultural impulse that I, in some, you know, late way, experienced. And I can only imagine that in the 1970s, when there was that first real surge of interest in in paganism and ancient British religions, that it must have must have been really intoxicating and exciting. Yeah. Yeah, because it's whether it's been underground or not, whether it's been kind of whispered or experimented with this album, this song makes it a little more mainstream. Yeah. Makes it more viable of of an idea that someone can who who was like us pagan curious it gives them that route to be like okay so maybe i won't be mocked and scorned and hung and burned at the stake right <laughs> yeah and it brings it into a modern context it doesn't feel sure. like oh i'm doing something old and old and weird right it's like, right i'm doing something that's very now cuz listen to that dope electric guitar yeah martin barr is granting me permission with his sweet sweet licks indeed exactly like a mama cat Sweet, sweet licks. What? <laughs> sweet licks? Like a mama cat licking a kitten? Sweet. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was a play on words, Omen. A little too oh, complex oh, yes, for you. Yes. Sorry. Ha, 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 ha. I thought it was some weird Cat Stevens song that I'd never heard. Oh. No. Sweet licks, baby kitten. I wouldn't be surprised. I licked my cat. What have I been hitting? <laughs> All right, Owen, anything else about Cup of Wonder? It has opened up a portal in my mind, Nick, to my teenage years. Yeah, it really, I was not expecting that, but it really made, really kind of brought me back down to it. And it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm digging, I'm digging the feel on this album. I'm digging the story that Ian is telling, certainly. Yeah. And there's something you know, just if we pull back for a second, there's something very genuine and life-affirming and positive. There is not a single note of bitter critique in this song. No. I mean, there's there's not really on this album. No. Which, you know, as much as we love the bitter critique from Ian, yeah. It's I I am reveling in being able to talk about the period when he had discovered something else. 
something that was was pure, unadulterated joy. Yeah. Apparently for him, so it seems. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that progression and that evolution for Ian. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what we're talking about next week? If I said yes, I would be lying. It is the sexiest song off of this album. That's all you need to know. Is it? Is it Hunting Girl? It sure is. The, I think you mean the kinkiest song well, off this album. Sure, right, right. To each their own. Well, until next week and Hunting Girl. Wrap your, your five-star ribbons around the Apple nice. Podcasts maypole. And create a beautiful design that expresses the fertility of Talk Tell to Me. That's great, Nick. You don't have to worry about Oliver Cromwell <laughs> looking down his nose at your celebratory reviews because you are under the plump and benevolent gaze of Charles II. In the embodiment of Nick and I. There it is. Write us a review. <laughs> yeah, in case in case you, it wasn't clear, write us a review. It wasn't clear to me. <laughs> Until next week, thank you for the review. I am Nick McGill. I am Omen Said. We are Feckless Momes. And this is Talk Tall to Me. Master Cromwell, Master Cromwell, we, we have reports. Oh, yes, come in, come in. Not so loudly. Turn down the lights, please. It's much too garish. We have reports from the countryside, Master. We're seeing the erections of maypoles all no! across the woods. Oh, my goodness. Please do not use the word erections. Oh, uh, 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 well, uh, upon those maypoles are, are gaily colored ribbons, Master Cromwell. Oh, oh my, my tender Puritan heart, please do not use the word gay. They dance about garishly and, uh, and, oh. and proudly to, to, uh, to celebrate uh, fecundity and, and fertility, Master Cromwell. I am perspiring from my pale head. What must we do about these unseemly gatherings of riotous sensuality? Well, well Master Cromwell, I, I haven't told you the, the, the worst part. Oh, uh, it can, can it be any worse than that? They, they listen to content from the, um, uh, from, from talk told to me, which <gasps> I, I'm afraid, as you know, is part of the, the Feckless Gnomes audio network. Oh, burn them, burn them all, and bring me a lemon I wish to suck upon it.